Well, if you have a Bible, you will want to turn uh, to Matthew chapter 5. Welcome again to Trinity Grace. So glad that you've joined us, especially if you're a first-time guest this morning. As many of you know, we are currently in a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon series is going to take us through the end of the summer. And you can find the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 of your Bible. And it was a sermon that was given by Jesus early on in his ministry. It was also likely a sermon that Jesus gave many times throughout his ministry. And it paints a picture for us of what the good life looks like. In this sermon, Jesus is letting his disciples know what it looks like to follow him. Jesus is encouraging us in this sermon to adopt uh, an ethic and a way of life that is in sync with the kingdom that he is bringing to this world. Uh, he, He is teaching us a way of life that can actually bring satisfaction to our souls and healing and wholeness to the world. Before we read our passage this morning, it's important to understand that as Jesus begins his ministry, his way of life and teaching is causing some issues with the religious leaders of the day. He comes as one who speaks with authority. We see that in the Gospels. He's healing people on the Sabbath. He comes and he's spending lots of time with immoral people. He's eating with sinners and tax collectors. He seems to like these people. He's spending a lot of time hanging out with women, which would have been against the standards of the day as the Pharisees and scribes looked and read the law. Jesus tells men that they can't divorce their wife for any reason at all, like they're used to doing. He comes and he tells people that they're forgiven of their sins, but he does it on his own authority. He doesn't appeal to God the Father necessarily. He just says it and it's done. And as you can imagine, there was some suspicion that was starting to brew, especially among the religious leaders, about who Jesus was, what he was teaching, and what he was doing. Specifically, there were questions about his scriptural orthodoxy. Was Jesus orthodox? People were beginning to wonder what Jesus thought about the law in the Old Testament. And it's against this backdrop that we read our passage this morning. Jesus wants to assure people that he came not to abolish the law, not to make it less important. Instead, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. A common phrase uh, is the law and the prophets, and it refers to the Old Testament. It's the entirety of the Old Testament. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus wants to assure his disciples and those listening to him that he takes the Bible very seriously. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, would have been Christ's Bible. In fact, he takes it more seriously than the leaders of the day. He came to set the law fully on its feet. He came to give its true meaning. So to see what I mean, you follow along and see how Jesus addresses this topic in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. So before we look at it together, let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your word, uh, light for our feet and our path. 
And we pray this morning that you would light our way, that we would see you, that we would see your glory, that we would see your love, and that we would be encouraged and changed by it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if you ever thought about the fact that we in our culture have kind of a love-hate relationship with authority. On one hand, we're a group of people who have lots of authorities in our lives. We've got lots of voices um, who speak into our lives on a variety of topics. Yet, even though we hear them all the time, we find it difficult to live according to the voices and the authorities that we hear. Think about all the authorities or the voices that we turn to in order to make uh, decisions and take direction in life. Uh, these, these authorities that we turn to so that we might know best how to live. We've got authorities when it comes to finances. You've got financial planners. You've got money managers. You've got accountants. Uh, our culture has authorities when it comes to health and um, medicine. Our personal physicians, maybe your CrossFit instructor or the newest diet out there. An authority, a voice in our life. We've got authorities that we listen to on politics and current affairs. CNN, Fox News, the Wall Street Journal. We are constantly looking for authority and voices in our lives. If you stop and think about it, we've got lots of different authorities. We crave these voices. It's almost as if we were created to live this way. Under the direction of another voice. And even though we've grown deaf to the original and the true voice that God wants us to hear in our lives and in this world, we still look for it. We look for it in all different places. The voice of one who can guide and direct us, who can tell us what's best, who can lead us on a path that leads to wholeness and flourishing. I wonder what voices are loudest in your life. This morning, what authorities are shaping you and and how you live in this world? In our passage this morning, we see that Jesus believed authority was important. In fact, Jesus submitted himself to authority. Jesus listened to God's authority. He allowed God's voice to speak loudest in his life. He took his cues from his heavenly father. And by taking these cues and by listening to his voice, Jesus was taking, uh, taken down a path that ultimately led to life and freedom, that led to flourishing. Look, we need authority. In fact, it's fairly obvious to see that we gravitate to authority. We want it in our lives, but often the authorities that you and I tend to gravitate towards can be harsh and they can sap life from our souls. They demand more and more. Oftentimes the authorities that we gravitate towards, they take from us and they don't give to us. They tell us lies oftentimes and not the truth. But the Bible comes and it reminds us that there's another way. There's another authority that we can live under. This morning, I want to open up the possibility that if you tried it on, you'd find God's authority to be beautiful and life-giving. Beautiful and life-giving. In our passage this morning, Jesus is touching on the character and the beauty of God's authority. And as we look at this authority this morning, I want to see three beautiful characteristics about this authority And why we need it in our lives. From our passage, we see God's authority is permanent. We see his authority is particular and practical. And we see that his authority is personal. So it's permanent, it's practical, and it's personal. Three Ps. That's a preacher trick. First, let's spend a few minutes talking about how God's authority is permanent. Permanent. 
We see the permanence of God's authority highlighted in verse 18 where Jesus says, For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Look, against the backdrop of people wondering if Jesus was going to come and put an end to God's authority, wondering if Jesus was going to abolish the law, Jesus assures people that God's authority is permanent. God's law, he says, is going to be in full effect until the earth and the heavens pass away. In other words, God's authority is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky or the earth under our feet. Jesus says that as long as we live in this world, not an iota or a dot is going to pass from the law. Now, in the Hebrew language, which is the language that the Old Testament was written in, an iota or a dot was a small stroke in the alphabet. Jesus is saying even the smallest details of the Old Testament matter, even the smallest details of the law are going to last and maintain significance. In this passage, Jesus is assuring us that God's word is always going to be authoritative in our lives. The authorities that we often listen to in our lives, they come and go, right? We listen to one authority today, maybe another authority tomorrow. Our culture itself changes. What we believe is good and right in our generation is likely going to be different from what the next generation believes is good and right. We live in a world that is constantly changing. In fact, it's hard to keep up with all the changes that are happening in our culture and in our society. We're people who constantly change. And against all of this change, it's comforting to know that God's word and his authority in our lives never does change. It comes and it provides a sense of stability that we desperately need. I wonder if you've ever tried to play a game where the rules were constantly changing. If you've got kids, you've likely played a game like that. It happens a lot with kids. You start a game, and let's say it's something like basketball, and at first you're playing and the rules are pretty familiar. You know the rules of basketball. You know how the game works. But slowly, especially if you're the dad and you begin winning the game, the rules slowly start to change. Now, instead of the basket counting for three points, it counts as four points if my son makes it. Uh, Or what used to be a foul isn't called anymore. Eventually, it gets to a point where you don't even have to dribble the ball at all. Uh, You can just take it straight to the hoop. And it's funny when you experience it in a game with your kids, but it'd be incredibly frustrating if you're engaged in a real game like this with other adults. If the rules are constantly changing, you can't really play. You can't really be sure. It's miserable in many ways. It drives you crazy. And it's a good picture of what life looks like when we live according to the whims and the rules of our culture. The whims of our own personal desires. Uh, Authorities other than God are prone to change. In fact, you can almost expect that they're going to change. Just think about your own internal monologue. The way that you talk to yourself. It's constantly in flux. I mean, what you desire today, you despise tomorrow. What you encourage yourself with today won't be an encouragement tomorrow sometimes. Your mood today causes you to choose one thing and tomorrow something completely different. The voices we tend to listen to in our lives and in our culture are temporary and they're always changing. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus comes and he offers us the comfort and assurance of a permanent and fixed authority. Jesus is assuring us that God's voice and authority in our lives will always be there. It'll always have the ability to guide and to direct us into paths of life and wholeness. And it's incredibly comforting. 
that we've got a true north star, so to speak. That in the midst of so much change and confusion in our lives in this world, we've got one thing that never does change. A foundation on which we can build that is truer and more stable than the world itself. We see from this passage that God's authority is permanent. But we also see that it's practical. We see from this passage that God's authority is practical. I wonder what comes to mind when you think of the Old Testament. Maybe for you, the Old Testament is an outdated book that doesn't matter much anymore. Maybe for you, you think the Old Testament has uh, been superseded by the New Testament. Maybe you look at the rules contained in the Old Testament and you view them as constrictive or oppressive. Maybe you think, because we've got Jesus now, why do we need the Old Testament? These are common conceptions that we have when it comes to the Old Testament, but they're conceptions that Jesus wants to remove from our minds and our lives. Look at how Jesus speaks of the Old Testament in verse 19. He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Not one time in his ministry does Jesus discount the Old Testament. He doesn't say, okay, now that I'm here, you can get rid of all that stuff. No longer needed. I'm here now. No, he does the exact opposite. Jesus constantly establishes the Old Testament. He says that your rank in the kingdom is going to be based on how you keep the law, on how you view the law. He wants his followers to teach God's authority and to live by it. It's what he calls doing and teaching in verse 19. Jesus is saying that if you want to be great in God's eyes, then you'll cherish and you'll follow the commandments set forth in the Old Testament. God's authority is seen in the Old Testament specifically is practical for our lives. It's practical for both Christians and non-Christians alike. Historically, the church has viewed God's law in the Old Testament as having three different practical uses. The first is the law is practical in everyone's life because it restrains evil. It curbs uh, humanity in a sense. It keeps us from running headlong into anarchy and destroying ourselves with our sinful decisions. Think about it for a minute. Think about how much of our modern world still has the imprints of God's practical authority on it. The fact that you can't kill someone without major consequence. The fact that we've got property rights and protection from theft. The the fact that we've got regulations that protect the poor and the powerless in our society. Where do you think these things came from? They came from the one that created us. That made this world to operate the way that it does. These all find their foundation in God's law. It's practical in that it restrains evil. Even in our society at large. The second practical use of the law, though, is that it's meant to reveal our sin and to drive us to Jesus. It acts as a mirror to show us who we really are and to show us our deep need for Christ. Theologians during the Reformation described this aspect of God's law as a hammer. A hammer that's meant to break us and to leave us without hope in ourselves. A hammer that is meant to drive us to Jesus. And it drives us to Jesus for the first time uh, as we're converted. And it drives us to Jesus over and over again as we come to him again and again for his grace and his mercy. The third practical use of the law, though, is one that's specifically important for believers or followers of Jesus. 
And it's, uh, it's uh, the view of the law that paints a picture for us of the beautiful, fulfilling life. So we find forgiveness in Jesus, and then he takes us back to the law as a guide that leads us into goodness. Leads us into goodness. The Old Testament commandments reveal the character of God and show us what it looks like to live a whole vibrant life. There's beauty in the Old Testament commands when you're taken back to them after having received new life from Jesus. Look, the problem is that we often view God's authority constrictively. It kills the fun. It's oppressive. But Jesus comes in this passage and he wants us to look at the law with a different perspective. As prescriptions for the way that you were created to live. We would say that the law is insufficient to justify us. We'll talk about that in a minute. You cannot be set right with God by following his commands, by obeying uh, his commands. We can't be made right with God because of our obedience. But it's very useful when it comes to how we are called to live as Christians. Life works best as we follow the laws and commands laid out for us in the Old Testament. A few weeks ago, we bought a new basketball goal for our son, Caleb. I'm talking about basketball a lot this morning. You'll soon find out why. His old goal had, had broken and it was time for a new one. So we went to Walmart and picked out a, a new basketball goal. And the problem was that it came in one big box, unassembled. Uh, and so I brought this goal home and I put it in our garage. And it meant that I had to put this set together all by myself, this goal together all by myself. Fortunately for me, though, immediately when you open the box, the first thing that I saw was a large uh, sheet of papers. And it was uh, the manufacturer's instructions on how to put the goal together. And so this past Thursday, I took pretty good care to follow these instructions. In fact, such good care that it took me about six hours to put this basketball goal together. And the instructions were really important for me on Thursday afternoon because I wanted the goal to be enjoyable. I wanted it to work for Caleb for a long time. We spent a little bit of money on this goal, and so I wanted it to last for Caleb and his friends. And in much the same way, the Old Testament commandments come to us And they operate a lot like manufacturer instructions. They come to us and they give us a picture of what it looks like to enjoy life as it was intended to be enjoyed. So that we might work correctly. If this is true, then we've got to rethink how we relate to God's commands and how we relate to the Old Testament in general. It means we can look to them to learn more about God. We can look to the Old Testament to see how God cares for the poor, the oppressed, the foreigner. We can look to God's commands to learn how life works best, to live according to our design. When we tell the truth, when we speak kind words, when we protect other people's reputations, when we love others well, we're living according to our design and we're working properly. So we've seen God's authority in our lives is permanent, it's practical. Now let's spend a few minutes looking at how God's authority is personal. It's not enough to simply know the commandments of the Old Testament and to follow them in your life. Jesus is also concerned about the motivations that you've got for following his commandments. This is what he's driving at in verse 20 when he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, we've got to understand that hearing this statement from Jesus would have been completely demoralizing to his original audience. No one was more serious about righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. 
In fact, as they looked at the Old Testament, the Pharisees counted 613 separate commandments. They counted 248 commandments that they were called to do, and they counted 365 commandments that they were called to abstain from. They were scrupulous in keeping law. Oftentimes, when you and I think of Pharisees in our current church culture, we view them as kind of shady characters because we've got the New Testament and we see how Jesus deals with them. But that isn't how Jesus' original audience would have viewed them at all. They would have been viewed with admiration and respect. The Pharisees were people that other people wanted to be like. They were heroes in a sense in Jewish culture. You see, the scribes and Pharisees, they looked amazing on the outside when it came to keeping the rules. They were the best. No one could do better than them. In fact, they made up extra rules just to make sure that they were following the original rules. For example, in order to keep from breaking the Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments, they mandated that you couldn't walk more than 1,000 feet on the Sabbath. If you walked 1,001 feet, you've broken that commandment. They, they said that if you wrote more than one word on the Sabbath, you've broken that commandment. They said that if you take more than one gulp of food out of storage, you've broken that commandment. Because of all these restrictions they placed in their life, they looked great from the outside. But their hearts were far from God. And that's what Jesus is getting at. When he says that your righteousness has to surpass theirs, the original audience would have thought, How? How is this possible? How are we going to do this? It's important to remember their righteousness was external. It wasn't internal. It was a facade. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but inside they're rotting and they're decaying. Jesus wants your righteousness to be internal and authentic from the inside. And Jesus is going to spend the next few chapters in his sermon as we look at it over the coming weeks, showing us how we can follow him from our hearts, not just by following the external rules. But by doing this, we'll see that Jesus doesn't make the law any easier when he changes the focus to our hearts. No, in fact, he makes it a lot harder in a lot of ways. He's going to say it's not just about your composure on the outside when you get cut off in traffic or when your wife or husband makes you mad. It's about what's happening in your heart. It's not about necessarily um, how you relate to the opposite sex externally. It's what you're thinking about them in your mind that matters. Like manageable by making it about external laws that they could follow and feel good about. But Jesus is going to give the law in its full form. He's going to fill it out as it was always intended to be. And as the law takes on its intended purposes in your life, it shines a bright light on the areas in which you fail. Where we struggle, where we're in desperate need of God's grace and his mercy. And this is why we need to keep verse 17 in mind as we think about the law. Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying that he is the thing. He is the person that the law and the prophets were pointing to. Jesus is the one who comes to fulfill or to complete or to accomplish the law on our behalf because we never could. Because we're dirty on the inside. 
Remember in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he's on the road to Emmaus with two other disciples, and he opens his Bible, he opens his Old Testament, and it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to his disciples what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. Man, I wish I could have been a part of that Bible study, right? Just open the Old Testament and let me see it for all that it really is. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater prophet. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial and ceremonial system. It's why nobody this morning brought a lamb or a goat to church. It's why I don't have a knife right here on my side uh, in order to slaughter a lamb. You think we're just ignoring that part of the Old Testament? Uh, we We don't think about that anymore. We're not ignoring that part of God's word. We just believe that Jesus is our perfect once and for all sacrifice. That we no longer need those things anymore because he has come and fulfilled that law on our behalf. All the law and all the prophets point to him like billboards pointing us to a destination. I like how Sally Lloyd Jones put it when she says, Jesus is everything God wanted to say in a person. Jesus is everything God wanted to say in a person. He is the Old Testament law and prophets in a person. And Jesus fulfills the law by knowing and by doing it perfectly, inside and out. He came as a great teacher of the law, but more importantly, Jesus came as a great doer of the law, and he did what we could not. He fulfilled it and completed it fully. Jesus came to do what Adam failed to do. He, uh, he obeyed to earn a complete credit for us. He pays the penalty that the law required. And then how do you and I get righteousness? Well, Jesus produces it and he gives it to us. He, he, he makes it a reality and he hands it off to us as he takes our unrighteousness upon himself. For those who like the NBA... I wonder if you've ever heard of Dickie Simpkins, Uh, perhaps unknown to most, but Simpkins uh, actually has more NBA championships than the mega stars like Barkley or uh, Iverson or Malone. Uh, In fact, he won all three uh, with the Chicago Bulls in 1996, 97, and 98. Yet, in 1996 and 1997, Simpkins, he had no points, he had zero rebounds, he had zero assists, he had zero blocks, he had zero steals, in the entire playoff run. Why? Because Simpkins played zero minutes for the Bulls that year. Yet, if you look at his ring on his finger, it's the exact same cut, the same quality, the same design as the one on Michael Jordan's. Why is that? Well, he was on his team and he benefited from Jordan's work. He benefited from his sweat. He benefited from his effort. He benefited from his victory. He's a champion in the record books, though he contributed absolutely nothing. And that's the idea that verse 17 is getting at for us. What we couldn't do, Jesus does for us. He fulfills God's expectations. He completes the law for us. He earns righteousness and he gives it to us as we place our faith in him. But Christianity is not about how much you love God. If it is, if that's what you think, you are going to drive yourself crazy. Wondering if you've ever done enough. It's not about how well you obey the rules and the commandments. It's not about making yourself more lovely so that God might one day love you. Christianity is about God coming to you in order to rescue you because you ultimately can't do it yourself. 
because you can't meet any of his expectations. It's about God loving you with all of his heart and sending one to fully fulfill the law on your behalf. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. Jesus does not earn God's love for you. God already loved you. He sent Jesus in order to die on a cross because of his love to fulfill the law for you and I so that we might be brought back into relationship with him. And once forgiven and accepted, we get to turn back and live under his gracious and beautiful and life-giving authority. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for your great love towards us. We thank you that you were one who came and completed what we could not complete. You were one who obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf so that we might have relationship with God. And we pray this morning that as we think about that, that it would sink deeply into our hearts and that it would change us from the inside out. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.